Our scripture reading for today comes to us from Matthew chapter 21, the first 17 verses. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to the daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him, Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, Lord, you have called forth your praise? And he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we will explore this triumphant entrance into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday. The palms are symbols of victory, something that, of course, the ancients would have all understood exactly what was happening, this waving of the branches. And what's so significant about this is, of course, historically in uh, the Old Testament scriptures teach us that in the second building of the temple, and this is the one, the second temple that he's headed to, after they built it, many of the elders were saddened and they wept because the glory had left the temple. And they did not have the glory of the former temple. And now here, in a way that nobody's expecting, the glory is actually coming back to the temple. And so this morning, on this Palm Sunday, we want to explore and sit back and marvel at this king. The king and his counterintuitive kingdom. He's a king who brings tremendous comfort. But before he comforts us, he confronts us. And who is this king who confronts? When we think about... Jesus, we love the idea of sort of an ancient hipster Jesus who just sort of loves the little guy and is going around and he's doing miracles and he's, he's doing good teaching and he's doing wonderful things. But we don't like the idea of a Jesus who's controversial, a Jesus who would confront, a Jesus who would put us in a scenario where we need to bend our knee and make a decision on who he is. Not just say, I'll take the parts of your teaching that seem to suit my ethic and I'll toss the other ones 
or I love the way you care for the poor, but I don't like any of this conversation around obedience to our Heavenly Father. This, this is a Jesus who actually confronts. But he's confronting for a reason. He's not confronting because God is somehow an, a needy egotist who needs to be worshipped so he can feel something. God doesn't need anything and Jesus doesn't need anything. All of the confrontation is for our benefit. In the same way that a loving parent will confront a child for the explicit purpose of their flourishing. And what's interesting is that up until this point, all through Jesus' ministry for three years, he has not wanted people praising him for his miracles. He's been telling people to keep silence. He's been waiting for his time. He, he didn't want thronging crowds to interfere with his ministry. Then on Palm Sunday, it's the total reverse. He welcomes the throngs to worship him. He welcomes the screaming in the streets. He welcomes the commotion. He welcomes all of it. He welcomes all of the praise. Up until now, shh, don't tell anybody who did this. Palm Sunday, they're yelling praises that have divine implications and they're shouting things that have Davidic, kingly, kingdom, political implications and he welcomes all of it. It's a massive confrontation. All these, place, these things are taking place during what the church has historically called Passion Week, these seven days leading up to the cross, Christ's death and resurrection. And this is all not just a set of random isolated events. All the events happening here on this Palm Sunday, everything leading up to the cross, this is all a culmination of the long history of Israel. It's a long redemptive God's redemptive history of salvation and redemption being brought towards his ultimate goal of how Christ would become king. And it's a throne, of course, that nobody was going to expect. And he's going to wear a crown that nobody would expect. But this is all moving exactly as God has planned for him to redeem the history of the world. And all of Israel's history is a microcosm of our history of every believer from every nation, from every country, from every city in the world. It's all a microcosm. It's the beating heart of God's salvation since the exodus from slavery in Egypt. It is a microcosm of the exodus of all of God's people. It's all coming to a head as Christ comes into this triumphant entry into uh, Jerusalem. And as you know, there wasn't a smooth salvation history. It wasn't like a getting better and better slow crescendo towards salvation. Rather, when you read throughout the entire Old Testament, the reverse is true. The people of God are a mess. The nation is a mess. God is constantly having to chase after those who, left to their own devices, would never turn and worship Him. And God, in this infinite grace, keeps moving towards His people who don't deserve it. And now He's doing something radically new as things are going to culminate at the cross. In verse 9, they're crying, Hosanna, which means God save us. And Jesus accepts it. He accepts the public declaration that he is the God that would save him. Very controversial. Lots of people are hearing this who aren't enjoying what they're hearing at all. It has monstrous political implications. He calls the temple, when he's flipping the tables, he calls it my house. It's very overtly in the words of C.S. Lewis, causing people to make a decision. Is he Lord or is he a liar? Should we crown him or should we kill him? It's provoking it. A question, of course, that we 
Since this time, everyone has had to answer that question. Who is Jesus? Do I crown him or do I kill him? And Jesus is not a victim of things that are spiraling out of control. The kangaroo court and the tragic miscarriage of justice and all of these things that are about to happen uh, coming to his trial leading up to the cross, things aren't spiraling out of control. He's, He's the sovereign master of his fate. He's very clearly communicating that he's not just another teacher, another scribe. You can't just take the things Jesus says that you like and apply them to your life and then shelf the rest. He's, he's provoking us to realize that no, he's not succumbing to these events. He's actually instigating all of these events. One of the guys most formative in, in my life, some of you have been a Redeemer in a while, know this, modern theologian anyways, uh, Tim Keller, a thoughtful guy in New York when he was pastoring there, was really formative for me when I was getting started getting ready to plant this church in terms of thinking about how do we, you know, uh, preach the gospel in a city where there's a whole myriad of worldviews. And one of the people who was really formative in Tim Keller's life was a woman named Barbara Boyd. And Barbara would talk about how Jesus is this Lord who confronts, causing us to sort of make a choice. Barbara said something that really changed Tim, and by, by extension has really changed the way a lot of people think about how we preach Jesus in this modern era. You see, you can't just preach the goodness and the grace of Jesus without calling us to answer the question of who he is and will we bend our knee to him as king and as Lord. Barbara said this. She said, my name is Barbara Boyd. You can't say to me, come in, Barbara, stay out, Boyd. That doesn't work for me. And we can't say, come in, Savior, stay out, King. The modern constructs of God, including the modern sort of uh, loosely evangelical constructs of Jesus, is that he's not a king. We love the idea of grace that we slather on our lives like peanut butter. We are like, ah, I guess my sins will be covered. But what we don't like is the idea that, no, actually, he has scandalously forgiven me of all my sin for the purpose of me bending my knee to his lordship which is not a burden, but the pathway to true flourishing, the pathway to true peace, the pathway to the true consolation and quietness of the storm that is the human soul, the obedience to Christ and bending the knee, saying, Hosanna, for he is the king, he is the king of my life, that I will now align all of my desires, my appetites, my ethics to be in congruence with Jesus. Not because I'm coldly following precepts, a person, I love a king, my king. Jesus is provoking all of this on that Palm Sunday. Who am I? Don't say, come in miracle worker, stay out Lord. Come in one who will feed me with bread in the wilderness, stay out king. It's confronting. But the good news is, of course, that this is all being driven by this cosmic love by which God has desired to reunite himself to his beloved creation so that he can bring to our hearts and to our lives the true flourishing. As I said earlier, he doesn't need our worship. We need to worship. To borrow from Jared Wilson, the condition of humanity is that we were created for worship and therefore the worship switch has been flipped on since the garden and we don't have a choice about worship. We only, the only choice we have is about what we worship. 
So that can be our education, our bank account, our life, our comforts, our home, our shiny toys, our things. It can be a thousand things. It can be the accolades of our respective careers and vocations, our notoriety in this city, the followers, the tweets, the retweets, the likes, the stars, the hearts, the whatever. I mean, the ways in which we measure and garner a sense of identity, we are creatures that are created for worship. This all comes to head on this Palm Sunday, who will we worship? We've got to worship the king. But what we realize is that this is a king and a kingdom that is counterintuitive. It, it counters how we understand a king and a kingdom. He's a king unlike no other. His gospel of love and of grace, it is an upside down kingdom. Shortly after this text that I read this morning, he's going to get down and wash his disciples' feet. Right now in our kids' classes, Susan's washing the kids' feet. She's teaching them that portion of the text and they're washing each other's feet. It's kind of gross, but it's not nearly as gross as watching somebody's feet in the first century when they're covered in the dust and the dung of the street. You don't wash other people's feet unless you're the, of, of the lowliest station that is conceivable. You don't bend down and wipe the dung off of somebody else's feet unless you are the lowliest of servants. And that's what this king does. After the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, after the palm waving, after the my house, I am God, shall be called the house of prayer. After all of the, all of the Davidic implications and the thing, the culmination of the, the Savior of all things, the Messiah of Israel. After all of it, he's going to clean the dung off of his disciples' feet. This is a kingdom that is counterintuitive. It's all intentional. He's all showing us who he is since Genesis the God who spun the cosmos into existence as a very act of love. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the mysterious trinity that we can't comprehensively understand. That God was complete before anything existed. And the creation of the cosmos was spun forward, not from an indifferent deity that, obsessed with power, but motivated by love. The desire to share all that is God with all that is not God, which is us. And he's going to do it again. Verses 4 and 5. How does he do this entry? He comes in on a donkey. It's intentional. The fulfilling of prophecy. Genesis 49. Reads, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch, and he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. What does that look like? <clears throat> Your entire clothing being stained in red. It looks like what's about to happen at the cross. And this is from, since Genesis, these prophecies of what Christ would come and do. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, 500 years before these events on Palm Sunday. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All these messianic images. Everybody knows it. <clears throat> they understand it. They know the prophecies. They went to Torah school. They get it. They know it. That's why they, that's why they run for the branches and they're waving the branches and they're saying, Hosanna, son of David. They know what they're saying. This is a processional for a victorious king. But it's also... A crazy paradox, because while they, on the one hand, seem to have great insight of what's happening, there's also tremendous misunderstanding. 
on what they think he's going to do. And what they, of course, they, they think this is a political deliverance. We've been talking about this for months, going through Matthew. They've all got sort of a poli- political overthrowing happening in them. This is what they're all expecting. This was their interpretation of the scriptures. It's what they're <clears throat> envisioning is going to happen. This text, it reminds us of the age-old mismatch between what we think God ought to do for us and what God actually provides for us. What he's actually provided for us God isn't working things out according to their plan. God still doesn't work things out according to our plan. God wasn't doing things on their timeline. He still doesn't do things on ours. Jesus was not really the king that they wanted. And sometimes if we're honest, Jesus is not the king that we want. Because we look out the window and we would do things differently. We would have wrapped things up by now. We've got all sorts of ways in which maybe we don't deny Christ, but we dethrone him with almost a passive modern arrogance but he is the great king and it's all tremendously humbling the coming on this donkey of course because in the ancient world the king comes in on a war horse this is not what they're expecting but Jesus uses all the language that would make them think this is exactly what they think it is in verse 3 when he says to his disciples go to the city there's going to be a donkey and a colt there If anybody asks you what you're doing, in the Greek it says, tell them, kurios needs it. The Lord, kurios. That word, kurios, in the Greek, was reserved for Caesar. The coins would say, Kaiser et kurios. Caesar is Lord. Stamped onto their money. So everybody knows who the kurios is. And there was a tradition in the ancient world, which was, If the king was coming to a particular city and he needed to commandeer your horse, he could do that. They would just go to you and they would say, the kurios needs the horse. And you're like, yo, the kurios gets what the kurios wants. That was already in the culture. So Jesus says, tell them the kurios needs it. But it's not Kaiser at kurios, it's Christos at kurios. Jesus is Lord. Christ is Lord. Uesu Christos at Kurios. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what's going on here. It's a pretty big confrontation. Everybody at the time was like, this is the moment. This is our Super Bowl. We have been waiting for this. It's not what they expected. And to be honest, I can imagine that they would have been dealing with their emotions a little bit because he's coming in on a donkey. He's coming in on a foal. He's not, this is not the image you would imagine for your Messiah, your political Messiah. Right? It's, it's, it's humbling and it's humiliating. And Jesus cho- chooses this humiliating image on purpose. They want Thor on a white stallion. They don't want a, they don't want a you know, plain-clothed civilian on little Sebastian. That's not what they want. That's what's happening. That's the image. He's coming to rule. He's coming to rescue. But he's not doing it like anybody expected. Every kingdom in world history, if you've been here at Redeemer for longer than five minutes, you've heard me say this so many times. And I will say it until I'm done as the minister at this church. But every king in every kingdom throughout world history has asserted itself by replacing the power at the top. And the same things are always left at the top. You swap out their people for your people. 
If you've got to use violence, fine. Right? As, you know, as moderns in South, uh, Southern Ontario, we are not going to use violence, but we've built into our political system, system that every four years we can overthrow. We call it voting. Every four years we can, we can overthrow and we can replace your people with our people. And after we replace your people with our people, we're going to change things, man. We're going to change things. And then that political horse is out and all those people are gone and then the new people come in and then all the people who were excited about that say, yes, now's, now's the time. There's gonna be, everything's going to be good because our, horse, our political horse won the race. But the same stuff ends up at the top. Power and control and prestige and greed and all the oldest things in the world. All the oldest things in the world stay at the top. And that's how it's always been. Now today we don't use swords in, in our particular neck of the woods, globally speaking, but all the same stuff ends up at the top. And that's how it's always been. So everybody thinks Jesus, his way, his kingdom is to take, take power at the top. Nobody's expecting him to shed his blood and make a direct beeline for the bottom. Nobody's expecting love and grace and forgiveness going straight to the bottom. They're all expecting there's going to be some killing. They're not expecting dying. They're all expecting bloodshed. But they're expecting to be bloodshed by the king. Bloodshed by the Messiah. They're not expecting bloodshed of the Messiah. The laying down of his power. Our God humiliated, humiliated himself and triumphed through weakness. And you and I receive our salvation by confessing our weakness. Confessing our need for him. So he enters the temple, verses 10 and 11, which was his whole purpose for going to Jerusalem. And he flips all the tables over. And why does he do that? It's not a violent outbreak. Because if you have a violent emotional outbreak, that's a sign of weakness. It's not a violent outbreak. This is a judicial act. He's doing it very on purpose. He's angry to be sure. The Bible doesn't hide away from that. But what is he angry with? Why is he flipping the tables? These exchange rates are exorbitant. Now it's gone. Not even close. I mean, they were, and it was terrible, and it was sick, and it was disgusting. And the entire book of Amos is all about that. You can read that later for some, like, some background. Right? You're selling the poor for a pair of sandals. You've got these insane profit margins, and you're living in opulence on the backs of people who can't afford your... So, wow, that's a nightmare. God abhors that. But Jesus is, 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 is flipping the tables, not because he's frustrated with the exchange rates. He's flipping the tables because, in the end, this had become a place that was not a house of prayer. It was not a true temple where God and his people would meet. And he has come to restore the temple. He is going to be the true temple where God and people would meet. Since Genesis, God has always been into temples. The Garden of Eden was a temple. It's where God and his people would meet. In the book of Revelation, what do you have? You have a garden city where God and his people will meet. In Genesis, you've got the tree of life. In Revelation, guess what shows up again? The tree of life. Jesus dies on the cross, which we celebrate for us, is a tree of life. God has always been about the, uni the union of his temple, of his people, but the religious leaders are including with Caesar, 
And the temple could be nothing further from being the place where his God, God and his people meet. And so now they've turned this place into a den of thieves. And God has always desired this temple making. He's always been into gardens and the cultivation of civilization. That's where this whole thing is going. I talk about it all the time. And Jesus is coming to bring renewal so that there can be a way for God and all of his people of every nation to be saved by his scandalous grace as he goes to this cross as a substitutionary atonement for our sin. Because as humans, our best shot at cultivating cities is sort of a sad parody because what we humans do by our own arrogance, we can't fully accomplish. Everything is sort of a faint, faint residue of what God had intended in the beginning. You know, everybody expected the Messiah to replace Rome, but nobody expected the Messiah to replace the temple. And Jesus is a gracious king who gives us what we need. He's not a mascot to our agenda who does what we expect. And he is the one who comes to confront, who comes and brings this counterintuitive kingdom. But then finally, he brings this tremendous comfort. And we see this because he is greater than the temple. He is greater than the high priest. He is the ultimate sacrifice. That's where everything's headed to as we celebrate the pinnacle of of the church calendar this coming Easter next week. And imagine if you were there and what would happen. There's money everywhere. There's people everywhere. There's people are running. There's dust everywhere. The tables are flipped over. The whole thing is an entire mess. The dust settles. But the whole reason that you went there was to purchase something at the temple for your sacrifice. And the great irony of all this is the high priest is at this point of the year supposed to be out looking for the perfect sacrifice. But instead, they're hell-bent on killing Jesus. Great stroke of Irony, what they don't understand is they are actually looking for the perfect sacrifice, who is Jesus. But as all of the dust clears, you'd be standing there saying, well, now what do we do for a sacrifice? And as all of the dust clears, there's Jesus standing there and you're looking at the perfect sacrifice. This is where this is all headed. Jesus is not just going to cleanse the temple. He's going to replace it. He's not just straightening out the sacrificial system. He's going to replace it. The ultimate sacrifice. At his cross next week, as we celebrate this Easter weekend, all the implications of what this king has brought. Not only the forgiveness of our sins, but also that he is at the cross, the Christus victor, the one who is victorious over sin. Not only this, but that he will bring renewal. We'll celebrate that on Easter weekend, the empty tomb, and the significance of that. The reinstating of what God desired in the beginning, the temple. Where him and his people would meet. You know, there's an author and research theologian, D.A. Carson. And as I close, I want to draw your attention to something that he wrote. He says this, that in the midst of all of this, there is this unbroken animal. And I know there's a couple of horse riders in this room. There's a couple of people who enjoy riding horses. I don't know anything about riding horses, but here's what I know. You can't just jump on a horse that's never been ridden before and ride. I know that much. And what Carson draws our attention to is that this is an unbroken animal. It's never been ridden. The text says that. And not only can you not drive and just get on an unbroken animal and ride it, but you can't even ride an animal that has been broken 
through a massive crowd where people are running and screaming and shouting things. This is very difficult for animals to be calm in an environment like that. But in the midst of all of this commotion, this unbroken young animal remains totally calm under the hands of Jesus, the one who controls nature and stills the storm. Jesus is the one Lord of all, and for those who are under his hand, there is harmony and peace. And this quiet miracle that foreshadows the healing and the restoration that is coming to all nature. And so church, while our world groans and is at unrest, we find comfort united to Christ under his careful hand, our Lord of rest, his grace that helps anchor us, joy that lifts us, his endurance by his spirit that keeps us, the peace that quiets us. You know, the entire world strains their eyes trying to see into the thick fog that is the future. And they do this with a nervous, anxious uncertainty. But not us. Because in the midst of all the commotion, our souls are quiet under the sovereign hand of Jesus Christ, our King. Let's pray.